Good morning, everyone. Uh, we all know the feeling of having to swap something at the last minute. We've all lived in technology, so thank you to the AV team for working through the issues. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. It's hard work. But um, we're here to talk about something different. Hello. Hello. I'm Matthew McCullough, and I work with GitHub. I'm Natalie Bradley. I work with Accenture Federal Services. We're going to have a little bit of a fireside chat here today, and uh, this is perhaps a little bit different than some of the other talks that you might have seen at reInvent, because we don't want to show just a bunch of code. We really want to have a very welcoming environment for you to hear about how these practices and ideas can be put into practice. So Natalie and I are going to have a little bit of dialogue about that, and essentially you're kind of listening in on a conversation with friends and some room to ask questions at the end. So I'm pretty excited about this. Yeah, I'm excited to share our journey. Cool. We should give some additional context to the audience to our experience, though, because how a federal agency implemented DevOps with GitHub is kind of um, kind of a fanciful title, and I think it really is is grounded in the fact that trying to do this work is extremely hard. We're going to give people a story of what worked, what didn't, what they should use as experience, um, what they should avoid, and to do that, we essentially need to set the stage. What's the environment? What are the tools? What are we trying to accomplish? And so when we do that, as I think of even the notes that you and I took together about what are the best pieces of the experience, we should start at the beginning and tell people what we're going to go through. Three simple parts uh, for today's talk, and um, these pieces are, are what, Natalie? How do we break it into these three pieces? Um, so our, our product and our platform, what is it that we use to implement an enterprise DevOps? What was the journey that we took? How did we get there? What was user adoption like? And then kind of where are we going from here? We've been um, set up now for two years. We still have a lot of work to do and um, a lot of improvements to make. And I know this audience. I've sat in these chairs before, so you wait 46 minutes to try to take an iPhone or Android pick of the what do I take away from it. So we decided we'd turn it on its head and then ask for your permission that uh, you'd stay with us for another 40 minutes or so. This is the end, and then we'll go towards the beginning of the story. In sum, we have these points as the takeaways. So if you want to pop out your phone, take the picture, and head out of the room, I hope that you don't, but we'll ask you to stay for the story. So the story is starting from the platform. And this is really important, Natalie, because uh, using the products that we're suggesting in this particular talk are our recipe. And you're going to adapt and interpret this to your own environment and your own company. But we're giving you a recipe that, that we use that we want to talk about today. So, so. <laughs> what's the first one? Uh, GitHub. And I, I think you are probably the most uh, specialized to talk about that for a bit. So I've been working at GitHub for seven years, and it feels like I've worn a lot of different hats and done a lot of different work, but it's always been about giving people a foundation to work together on code. And even recently, I was talking to a large consulting company. It was really fun to say 1960s, 70s, 80s, some of the software work that NASA did, um, even Margaret Hamilton and her work on Apollo 11 work is was a very isolated, single-person type of activity for software. But I would say that if you're trying to be successful in software development today, especially in the cloud with AWS, it's a collaborative environment. And so if I turn that back to you, GitHub, collaboration, any soundbite for what that means to you and your team? Uh, yeah, so it is, it is our shared source code repository, and it's definitely um, a collaboration environment. Um, you'll start to hear a little bit of stories of how and why that is coming up here, but um, it was kind of an anchor to our entire ecosystem, and it's where we began our entire journey. And a lot of you in the audience may already know, uh, but this is 35 million repos, 15 million people. But I'd love to see a show of hands. Who uses GitHub today at all in any form? Cool. 
that makes it a very easy environment <laughs> to talk to about this. So uh, in particular, we realize we're at reInvent, and something that's super important is all of this was spun up on the cloud. And I think that that's really important to success because this work doesn't have a lot of patience in it. In a couple of months, I'll provision you some servers and you can get started on this. I don't know anybody that's happy about that kind of time duration. So uh, for you, what did AWS particularly bring? Uh, so obviously the cloud, infrastructure and hardware purchases completely streamlined. Scaling became like a non-issue. Um, performance improvements, and just in general, the cloud made it so much easier for our users to ensure that they can get instant um, access to our instances. Well, tools. this path is hard enough on its own, and I think I'd like to remind you that whether you're working at a San Francisco startup or my role, helping one there, or helping somebody in the Midwest uh, in insurance or the like, it's even harder there, but all of us kind of have the calibration that doing this at a government agency is harder still. We can all kind of imagine some of the constraints that come with that. Yeah. Uh, is that accurate? Absolutely. I mean, we had um, software development was very consistent. Uh, we had things all over the place, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of companies can um, relate to this, but um, having a deployment, we had project teams come in on a Saturday morning at 6 a.m., um, and they would spend the Pizza day <laughs> they'd spend the day going from dev to test, back to dev to test to prod, back to dev, um, and they'd leave at midnight. And they're like, "This was awesome. It was that was a great um, production release." Yeah, but celebrating those heroic moments and and pushing it out to prod at Sunday, Monday morning, 1 a.m just not seeing it as the sharpest time. And on top of this, I like to think of this as kind of a sport. You get better the more you practice it, the less it becomes a heroic event. It's just every day. Mm -hmm. We push to prod, we do this all the time. So getting that mindset was extremely important. But I think there's a key word here. And what we're trying to give you is in fact some language. Please take the slides afterwards and please liberally use these back at your own institution. But I want you to kind of phrase this with your teams to say that you're transforming the way that people do work. It's not changing programming languages and retraining them to use a different syntax, but it's the change in the way that people work together and with the tools. Absolutely. Um, we we were making small positive increments over you know the life of an organization and software development, but to get our developers to think of um, code commits and sharing and collaboration as a habit as part of the norm is really where we wanted to get to. We didn't want people working in silos, we wanted them to collaborate and see that there's a lot of value in reuse. And I'm, I'm a pull request user, of course, day in and day out, every day of the week that I work for GitHub, but I do like to think of this as a stepwise approach. And my simple question for a lot of customers, maybe you can ask your colleagues around the, the, the water cooler, the coffee machine, is do you even know where the code to that project is? And it seems like such a simple question. Of course you'd say, of course we do. It's in, do you know where the code is for that? How often have I heard that? And so it's a really good place to start because it then starts to encourage reuse and discovery. So simple things at the beginning. So if I had to ask you, Natalie, as I think about the question for the audience is, what is DevOps from an agency and, and a perspective of a government institution implementing this? What is it? So help me refine it, not just the AWS. Yes. What is DevOps? Um, so ask me this two years ago, what was DevOps? It was absolutely something that we didn't have. It's um, collaboration, it's consistency, it's tools and best practices. And it was not really something that existed um, at an enterprise level, for sure. 
Okay, so we've set the stage, but you're here essentially to hear how this process worked in particular in implementing it with this government agency and then to take stuff away from that. So we'll spend most of our time here on this particular trip. And I think you'll find some interesting pieces about this because uh, there is no gist or tiny URL that gives you all the secret tips of what to do. I wish it were that simple, even though you've taken a picture of that other slide. <laughs> um, it's essentially a lot of difficult things. And as Lewis Carroll says, uh, start at the beginning, and when you get to the end, stop. So starting at the beginning is a great phrase, assessments. Oh, um, is yeah. this like a bureaucratic form <laughs> that we fill out, the assessment form? Um, we, we interviewed, you know, we polled our users, what exactly is software development to you? How are you doing software development? Where is your code? Um, are you doing commits daily? Are you doing them regularly? What, is, what does CI mean to you? We just wanted to understand what the playing field looked like. We weren't uh, trying to judge anyone. We didn't want to put anybody in a bucket, but we had to understand how much diversity, how much velocity, how much change and capability did we have in this organization of thousands of developers? And when you use phrases like, I'm gonna transform the way this company or department or software development works, there's a big old spotlight shining on you once you, once you make that kind of a statement. And so you're gonna have to build confidence. And giving people a sense of data and where you are at the beginning is really important. An inventory of, do you use continuous integration today? Do you know where your code is? Even the simple question that some of us in the audience might kind of snicker at a little bit, but asking those questions and then kind of seeing where groups and individuals fit. How did you draw circles around those responses? How did you group and bucket them? Um, so we, we kind of created a um, Chinese menu of sorts, so we call it. We didn't want to say you're advanced and you're beginning and this is where you have to start integrating from. We wanted to let everybody kind of decide what pace they were at just by the assessment alone. So when a project team said, we think we know where our source code is, we would you know, kind of suggest, why don't you, why don't you try figuring out exactly where it is and put it into GitHub. So we gave them a lot of liberty in determining where it was that they needed to start and how they needed to move forward. And in some cases, the responses, I think you'll be shocked by some of them. If you're talking a larger organization with a diverse set of responses, uh, we're storing our code in SharePoint. I've seen it. A lot it's of it been there. Sometimes subversion, subversion users in the room. Don't be embarrassed, it's okay. Like we can all move to GitHub. Okay, so a couple in the room. And then other diverse version control systems out mm -hmm. there too, but we're trying to get people on a common one, not just to push a technology, but to create a common language. I think that's the important thing is not forcing an answer, but creating a common language so people can share yep, and create a marketplace. So this transformation to DevOps now says that you've got different starting points. You took your assessment, and I think you should too. If you're implementing the same journey, take an assessment, figure out where people are in their skill levels. But how do you deal with this? Now you have answers all the way from very skilled to I've never done this before. Um, yeah, that, that's the challenge, right? Because you, you don't want to identify anybody, hold, you know, isolate anybody out there. Um, we had to embrace diversity. So how do you go about doing that? You really just tell people um, what DevOps is. You let them know the benefits, you let them know the challenges, and you just kind of open arms, just let them figure it out and kind of move in on their own pace, which is critical. I think it's funny because this is a different type of diversity than what we often talk about in our workplaces today, but it's a diversity of maturity and skill in a function that's really important to where we're trying to head with software development today. And I think that if we have talented people that know our vertical, 
healthcare, insurance, government work, um, then it's really important to give them an education path to move forwards to learn how to do these techniques and not just say, oh, you don't know this, I'll hire somebody or a consultant or something like that outside. I need the team to know it. It's not just about having that expert or that individual. Yeah. Um, I think about having people starting at these different places, uh, then wanting to be able to say whether they're making success though. I certainly know that the most proficient people on the teams that I get to work with are not just experts, but people who are able to self-assess. Am I making progress? What should I learn this week? What will I spend an evening watching a, a YouTube or a webcast or something on a Treehouse or Code School or something like that and watch it? So a maturity model was important here, and can you tell me a little bit about what that looked like? Yeah, um, it um, kind of, it did identify what groups were. So we found that there were groups that already had a Jenkins um, server. They were already using some form of Git, or maybe it was even um, SVN, and they, they were ready for somebody else to own it. So they were, you know, when we told them DevOps was coming, they were super excited. They're like, ooh, I don't gotta worry about any of that kind of stuff anymore. You manage it, and I'll just get my job done. Um, and then there were project teams that literally had like an SVN server in a closet probably hasn't been patched, don't have any idea what the uh, latest version or security doesn't know about it. So we wanted to make sure that those teams felt comfortable coming into our environment as well. And you know what I noticed the difference about this from, say, some of the other customers that I've worked with, where the CIO or the CTO made a new technology decision and said, you're all going to use it. We know that's the best possible way to get people excited about using a new technology, right? Um, you get somebody up top to say, you're going to use this and you're going to like it. Uh, but I think the opposite. Uh, I think an attribute of success in spending all this time with you is to say that you did not mandate that people use these, but made it an option. And in fact, there's a chart a little bit later, foreshadowing just a bit, that shows why this behavior was so important and that there was a kind of a special moment that this this changed over. In the yeah, timeline. absolutely. We, we wanted this to be a habit. As I mentioned earlier, we wanted people to be excited about it. Uh, forcing it and mandating it, uh, you get a lot of excuses and a lot of reasons why this isn't going to work out. So we wanted to avoid that and um, just really talk to people about why it's a good habit to have. And um, we had we had zero, we had a lot of um, developers that had zero knowledge of DevOps, much less actual experience with it. And so we had to make sure that we kind of got them in and up to date on what it was and how to move in on DevOps on their own. Now you said something funny, so we're at, we're at reInvent that I wanna kind of uh, go and dive deeper into, and you said you wanna get them up to speed, but uh, people are here at reInvent. But in most cases, I've been asking around the GitHub booth and like, you know, how many of your colleagues got to come? One out of 10, one out of 100, depends on the company. So only a fraction of your peers probably got to make it to reInvent. And you have a very interesting culture with your team. Um, tell me a little bit about these internal conferences and ways that you educate okay. teams. Uh, so cool. communication, 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 and education, absolutely, hands down, uh, one of the most important things when you're dealing with a culture change, right? So we do, um, we've been around for two years now, and we still do conferences. We have a summer series where we do tips and tricks and um, we focus on security, and we'll talk about old stuff, and we'll talk about new stuff. Um, we have a website that has FAQs on it. Um, we've got tutorials. We do. Um, we have a blog site, and one of the most exciting things about the blog site, actually, is that majority of the content today is from the developers. It's, it's not from my project team, and that's a huge sign of success. And I wish I could tell you like some secret method to call in a function that was somehow a success, but actually the human aspect is one of the most interesting ones if I'm to compare customers that have tried to make this move and not been as successful as Natalie and her team 
run conferences internally. How exciting is it if you know you and you and you get to be the speakers at this event? And maybe it's not reinvent, but it's something inside. You get to be recognized as knowing a domain. Now you're the reference person. Now you're building knowledge inside. Your peers think that it's fantastic to be able to come to you for this information. It's one of the best takeaways of this entire experience of talking to Natalie is internal conferences, low cost, fantastic outcomes. Run them yourself. And uh, you can even submit those abstracts to other conferences. Yeah. You, be you become a leader in your own organization. And that's kind of exciting for everybody. Now, we mentioned GitHub, but we're actually moving beyond that because I think uh, in this talk here, there's a couple of things that when we're talking about people starting at different points, it's important to start with really small steps. And again, some folks in the audience say, I've already got CloudFormation templates and I spin up entire farms of servers for these things. But also remember that you have peers, that if you want to be successful in this journey, you need to bring them up to a nominal set of capabilities. It's not just the fact that you're super advanced and got to come here to reinvent. So Jenkins as a second piece. What was the first use of this? Uh, Jenkins is a brain. Um, so we definitely had um, project teams that were not familiar with committing code uh, regularly, much less um, doing continuous integration. We had project teams that would every six months, even less frequently than that, actually do some integration. So GitHub was actually that place that made it easy for teams and made it um, kind of collaborative. So Git, uh, Jenkins is pretty fantastic in that when a um, commit or a build breaks, it lets the users know. So your project team is now getting notified that, hey, Bob broke the build, and this is where it happened. And that's information and insight that they've never had before. Um, the integration that GitHub has with Jenkins is really awesome. It's um, streamlined a lot of things for us, and it really helped us start looking into pipelines and workflows. And I like to kind of call out the awkward piece, because again, some in this room might think like, oh my goodness, how elementary, but I really would like to emphasize again and again through this talk that if you want to be successful, and we've seen hundreds of companies as GitHub make this transformation, you have to think about being inclusive, not just showing how brilliant you can be at that top slice. It's all about making sure that everyone feels brought up to this common level. And this is one of the interesting pieces. It's not just setting up jobs to regularly do the builds instead of manually have a button to press it, but then give them one other tidbit that they didn't have without it, always creating that magnetism to want to do this, not to mandate. And to get that information back about potentially who broke the bill with the latest commit, you'd be surprised is really novel information at a lot of the institutions that we get to work with. Oh, cool, now I know exactly whom to go have a human conversation with about this. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Any other interesting discoveries about Jenkins? I heard you used it in one interesting way to kind of incentivize its use. Um, we, uh, we asked project teams to just use Jenkins for whatever you can find it for. And we had a project team that actually scheduled their daily stand-ups using Jenkins. Send an email to the team every day at 10 o'clock. I'm like, wow, that's unique. <laughs> but it worked for them. And the next thing, they actually were building software out of it. So wherever you can start, um, whatever's less intimidating for you, go for it. It's embracing that start from any place. And it also forms habits. Remember that doing it once is great. Doing it every couple of hours is better. Doing it every couple of minutes is fantastic. And then eventually get to the point where you know it's, it's almost like that graph where it approaches zero as the, as the line smooths out towards the end. You're not noticing that you're doing discrete builds anymore. It just always seems built. You just kind of end up with it there. But you end up with that by creating a habit of going from manual to at least a schedule to increasing the schedule to thinking about it as just something that constantly happens. And I think I'll come back to the fact that the cloud and the ability to scale that is what's incredibly empowering to make that happen. 
So we've thought about pipelines, continuous integration, but there's one more piece, and this is actually kind of centered around Git and GitHub just a little bit, but it's more focused on Git, the, the underlying technology to the version control system. Separating out binaries is incredibly important, and so it's your particular choice of tool, but I'm interested in giving the audience the patterns. Um, Artifactory, why? Um, so we needed to show our software developers what best practices were, right? Um, binary management is critical, um, and putting it in your source code repository is not really best practice. You gotta store your source code, you gotta store your binaries, you really don't wanna put them together. You want to be able to recreate your binaries from source, that's the DevOps way, right? So we thought that was a critical component, um, especially in behavior for our teams. It is, and so moving repos over to Git, a common question that we've heard even at the booth uh, for GitHub and, and other places talking about Git as a version control system, is a real need to separate source code from binaries. You need to think of them as important but separate. Because if you're checking the binaries into the repo, uh, Git, the underlying technology behind GitHub, is really not set for repos over, say, five gig, eight gig on the upper side. Even when you look at the Linux kernel, which was the inception of Git, the version control system, itself from Linus Torvalds, it really is made to hold something that is plain text and it operates best when doing so. So having kind of tools that serve each purpose is incredibly important. But we want to give people aspirations. So if you say to yourself as you're kind of checkpointing, taking your own notes and say, I've got something that kind of solves up all the way up to this point, I want to give people an aspiration, Natalie, by hearing what you did about What's next, though? So, okay, now you've got a foundation, and you've got your maturity model, and you kind of have gotten some of the people who are in the, the low end brought up to the middle, um, but then what next? Because they're going to want the what next. What do I do to get a little further along? So we wanted to look at um, metrics from a DevOps perspective, not so that managers can say you've got great adoption. Uh, we also wanted to look at security, critical, especially in our environment. Um, and we also wanted to look at things like um, testing tools and more automation. So we've been playing um, with SonarCube. It's open source, it's free, um, it does great dashboard metrics for basic DevOps things. What kind of um, level of code coverage do you have? What kind of commits are you doing? Those great things. Um, and we also started to play with um, Selenium Grid as automating our user acceptance tests. And I like to think about this as a shifting capabilities left. So if you think of these as the realm of people who'd either be in test or a quality department, it may be phrased differently at, at your organization. I like to think about bringing them more and more back into the software development space. I want that circle to get bigger so that just wearing the title of software developer is not some small circle of eight or 10 people, but is much bigger. And um, in many cases, we've seen testers come back and start helping with the code base, either in requirements or potentially in bug fixes, not just reporting them, but actually helping solve those. Um, and in a few cases, people actually helping build out features in those cases. Yeah. What's that experience, though, for people who are seeing their work feel a little bit more automated? Um, when we first started looking at Selenium Grid, we met with a project team that had uh, 15 testers, and over the course of three days, um, would go through all of their um, UI testing. And the first thing they, the, the manager had said to us was, um, I'm not letting go of 15 testers just so I can automate this process. And like, that's absolutely not what we're trying to do. Um, let's utilize those resources, your people, to better your product. Have them write more 
tests, have them improve the testing, have them get that automated uh, workflow faster, better. Um, it's, it's, we're not looking at eliminating people, we're really looking at how do we advance our technologies with the people that we have. And when you look at a lot of the other customers that I get to talk to, I ask them, so you've got tons of spare capacity right in the test department. Said no one ever that I've asked so far that they've replied. And they always say, we can't get to the things that we want to, the housekeeping, the improvements, the maintenance. And so this frees up some spare cycles. But uh, even at GitHub, for example, we did some, some work over the last year where we massively parallelized the test suite to bring it down, in some cases, by several hundred percent, uh, a reduction in one case from 10 minutes to two minutes on a suite by having those spare cycles. Okay, so the basics are automated, so now I can start thinking about how to structurally improve these test suites, and that's the kind of thing that I see come out of this. Um, also, Selenium is a really easy way to start. If you're largely in the manual testing space today, you can think of it as just driving the web UI. It's a really easy place to begin with. But let's give people a timeline. So we've suggested some approaches to start, some ways to measure progress, some recommended sets of tools. You can mix and match as you like for what that recipe is. But then now it's kind of rolling out. What do we expect? If people are building a project plan and they're going to put this up in front of executive leadership, what might that look like? Um, well, you'll, you'll see our graph of adoption here shortly, but um, it's, it's probably not going to be what you expect. And I'm not even sure what we expected, but um, it's, it's not going to be everybody in a week, right? You, you can't overwhelm everybody and expect that just in days and in minutes they're going to change the entire life of software that they've known. Um, so Though you had adopters <laughs> in minutes and hours. We did. We did. Their fingers we did. Um, in the first day that we went live, we actually had a, a team doing continuous integration off of our master um, server, and we were we we were dancing. It was pretty amazing. <laughs> but after that, it didn't it it didn't pick up as quickly as we had hoped. So I'd like to offer this quarters quarters of a year as granularity are a really good place to start. If suddenly you find yourself at several times the velocity you expected, that's fine. You can report that happy number. But quarters are kind of a good mm -hmm. granularity. And we, we would set a goal for a quarter. So let's see if we can get to X number of GitHub users by the end of quarter two, number of CI projects by quarter three. Um, and those were, they were achievable. Selenium yep. versus manual tests. Yeah, so those were easy metrics to get and uh, obvious signs of adoption. I think all of that, though, uh, implies people are changing their behavior. And this actually goes to, again, the graph that we've foreshadowed just a little bit. Um, people are scared of change. So if you want to keep your job, keep your head down. We all know the phrases, right? Keep your head down. Just do the work assigned to you. Keep it status quo. How do you kind of break that mold and not have people feel like they're they're putting their neck out or they're at risk? What if it doesn't go right? Right. So um, we created an environment that was, I want to say, completely fail-safe, but something that they could play with. So we have a master VPC. It's our enterprise service, um, our enterprise VPC. All of our services are available in there. Every conference, every demonstration, every bit of code we've ever written is publicly available in GitHub. And all of our jobs are available in Jenkins. Um, teams can look at everything we've done, uh, check out the configuration, they can test it. They don't have to actually go to their environment and mess with something that they wrote and hope that they break it. We wanted to give them something that's a little bit more comforting, right? The, the team that did their daily stand-up through Jenkins, that was on our master server. Um, and immediately they can also send us an email with a question, like, how do I better this or how do I change that? So you want to give them kind of a almost a fail-safe, right, without without starting on their their own. So I want to give that as a recommendation to people is when you're when you're doing a budget for this type of project, 
um, give yourself room to set up sandboxes, ones that are completely throwaway. I mean, it could almost be duplicate amount of resources to start. I'm just, you know, kind of finger in the wind estimate, but a place where people could literally burn it down, ruin it, and then just build it back up again and it's safe. If you only give them prod, no one will experiment. No one wants to be that person who's the first one to touch mm -hmm. production. But if you give them a sandbox, they'll experiment. And it's like the fun old days of like taking apart, you know, the broken appliance in the house. Like who gets, who gets the turn to take it apart? Because <laughs> there's so much discovery. You're not worried. You can't ruin it. It's already broken. It's already broken. So mm -hmm. you can figure it out. Yeah, and the, the more senior teams that we had, the ones that were a little bit more advanced, everything that we put we were going to put in production, we put in tests first, and we asked for volunteers, come try and break this. Like, see um, what kind of damage you can do to it. That helped us significantly, but also gave the um, community kind of an opportunity to contribute and tell us what they liked and didn't like. So that was definitely a value. Well, you practically are already describing, and we've, we've said a little bit, what do, the, what do the numbers look like, though, for this? Because I think we could get impatient. If you're creating goals, kind of some KPIs or metrics, you're tracking towards adoption of a tool or automation of a test suite. Um, in this particular case, we just tracked these two and put them up here. You've got to be very patient um, for a number of months here. I see kind of a point in the middle of the graph, but I, I want to talk about the left side first. So those first days. So this is this is a, this is a snippet in time. Um, we've been live for two years, so this is looking back for one year from October to almost now. Um, like I had mentioned, day one we had um, a team using our tools. By the end of the first week, we had like a handful of projects. So we were like, "Wow, this is this is just going to take off," and it didn't. Um, we had it was, data points it, of two <laughs> flat that trajectory line. Yeah, the two it wasn't points. it wasn't really going very far, but you can see GitHub did. Um, pick up that was the the tool that we were really wanting to get everybody at least to use. Um, but kind CI of people took, from the outpost into the center. Yeah, um, but the CI part um, for the actual project to start using it that that flatlined a little bit and took a little longer for people to get into. So what I've recognized about this, this is a chart, this is numbers, but I care about about people first and foremost, and this is what you have to have happen to make this long-term successful. At some point, the default behavior of the larger group of the teams, and more than half, has to flip from this being the default approach and then making their team members feel just slightly uncomfortable about not doing it this way. And up until that kind of middle point, um, what my experience has shown me is that it's the opposite. It's the people who are out there and stretching the front edge who are doing that work. And it's like, you know, I'm just going to take the safe old way. But then at some point, safe becomes the new way. And it's actually a little bit awkward to go the old approach. I'm going to stand it up on my own box. Yeah, so that... That spike right there, we increased the amount of communications we did. We had like three or four events. That had a lot to do with the adoption, but the reason that that spiked is we started to ask the users, the more advanced, mature teams, to brief at our conferences, to talk about their successes, their failures, and what they learned. And literally at that June point, um, one of the, um, our uh, projects in our community had said, you know, DevOps isn't an easy button, but it sure as hell made my job easier, and this is how, and this is why. And a product mm. team can say till they're blue in the face, this is amazing, everybody use it, but it's really their peers that are enforcing and communicating that this is really value, this is, this is pretty awesome. And, you know, I'd like to say that once you've gone through this pattern, there's, there's a meta pattern to this, too. 
if you've gone through this, you can repeat this whole thing. So again, if you're thinking to yourself, okay, simple things like collaborative platform, uh, a distributed version control, a CI server, a binary, uh, a binary storage tool, a little bit of automation around testing, I've got all this. I can probably see it in a couple of eyes even right now. But the thing is, you can take that same pattern for the next set of four or five tools and skills that you want. You again have internal conferences, you teach these best practices, you get people to flip where they're using this. Using the cloud becomes the default. The idea of building constantly is the norm. So I think it's more about the pattern of this talk than it even is the specifics that we're Absolutely. calling out this particular time. So thinking about the time, we're gonna have some Q&A um, room here at the end. I wanna bring this to the, the takeaways because again, we want you to basically take this deck, take the ideas that Natalie and I have conversed about here today and then just take them, steal them, use them at your own company. We wanna see you succeed in the same way. And so I would basically bring it down to just a couple of final points. Um, tools and software development patterns. You know, the patterns of, of today, um, collaboration, Bounce back some keywords. What's another one for you? What's a uh, pattern here? Expansion. Okay. Uh, automation. Automation. Um, regularity and habit. <laughs> and the idea of intersourcing. It's okay to stand on the shoulders of somebody else inside the company. You have to have a culture where you don't just celebrate the people that build it from scratch, but the people who improve, who fix, who reuse a framework that somebody else had. Yeah. And we didn't talk about it a whole lot in the, in the middle portion of the presentation, but any hints on reuse? Um, yeah, when um, we stood up uh, DevOps and we let everybody know that all of our stuff was public, the first time we actually got a pull request was the most exciting thing ever. And it wasn't because somebody thought our stuff was cool and they wanted to reuse it, mm -hmm. but more because we saw that this was working. People were looking through GitHub, looking for repos, looking for code that they could reuse, and taking that, improving it. And we've heard them talk all the time, oh, if it wasn't for the DevOps team, I wouldn't have started this. So we're getting credit for something that they've completely improved for us. And I think that's an important habit. Many people know borrowing open source um, from github.com and reusing it, but I'd love for this to happen inside your walls where we, Natalie and I have no, no visibility, but you know, you're telling us the next time we see you at a conference that you were able to reuse software inside the company. And there's some major stories. There's um, a, a very well-known financial services, online financial services company that had 13 different implementations of credit card processing. And there's, there's no efficiency in that. We know how to process credit cards, but everybody wanted to build their own. But some of it is not through malice, it's just through lack of discovery. So there can be some really big wins from these simple changes. So, Natalie, we've kind of said the, the what you did today, but I'm most interested, especially as it'll be a year before we see some of these faces again, what's next? What are you gonna do in the next six months? So, containers are kind of the cool thing, Docker. We definitely wanna add more automated security into the process. Um, I, I really, though, kind of wanna, kind of looking at this whole experience this week with reInvent and everything, kind of want to look at feedback from our developers. I could come up with, being at this conference, I can come up with a list that's the length of my arm of all the cool <laughs> things we would love to do. But I think it's, it's, the, it's the developers that define what we do and I kind of want to set up a way for them to give us that feedback and tell us what they really want. I'm always the person who has to ask why, but um, why are containers interesting? Because it's easy enough to just hop on a bandwagon of a, of a technology, but what does it do for your group? Simplicity, right? It's just replication. It's being able to do things so quickly and um, reuse, and it's just it's just a great capability that we haven't seen 
that ease of use ever. In a way, it almost feels like it's bringing the concept of an AMI, which we've really all enjoyed, I think, uh, down a level so that it's accessible more places in more ways. But to me, it's that idea. Yeah. So taking that to a summary, we showed you this at the beginning, but I think we could, um, we could offer just a few highlights of each. So as you take your notes on these things, you know what we mean by them. So start with the platform. Yep, um, AWS, okay. <laughs> get your tools. Uh, yeah, because procuring <laughs> hardware takes a very long time, but then going on to something interesting, run a capabilities assessment. I mean, why? Just get going. I mean, this seems like a waste. You could say it's a waste of time. Why, why right, but you, if, you, yeah, but 20% uh, of your um, users are the advanced users. So if you build an environment and you think everybody is advanced, you're going to lose 80% of your team right away. I think you're right. And then how are you going to keep getting funded? I mean, even if you're inside, even if you're not applying for funding as a department or that you're getting funded by a government institution, even inside your company, you have to ask for funding. So what's the maturity model help? Um, it helps give new tools. It gets people interested. It gets those um, really experienced people intrigued and knowing that there's something next and this is going to constantly keep improving as opposed to core competencies and we're always looking at the baseline users and never really getting much further. And I would say that it, you know, it's, it's the roadmap. So often we present, whether it's a, a startup to a VC or if you've inside a company, you just present, uh, here's my idea and this is what I'm going to do. And it's just kind of a, a list of things you checkbox, but I think showing it as a map of how you get there shows a lot more thought and planning. Um, so to me, this is the way to get things funded so much better. Um, widely varied initial competencies, though, it still kind of bugs me just a little bit, like accept those, just deal with it. Is it like, you know, the little glasses coming down and the a gift? <laughs> we, we have a virtual workstation um, that we've created to help our users and we get questions like, where's the box gonna go? I don't have room under my desk. It's like, what? Um, so that, that's why we have to vary this. Like those, those are the people that are building mission capabilities and we've gotta make sure that we have them on board understanding what it is we're doing um, for all levels of the community. And I'll simply say for the safe spaces for experimentation, if all you have is, is dev, test, prod, you're missing the whole idea of having a space for learning because test is not learning, test is a step towards prod. It's a very different experience. And if you make it safe, uh, you get a lot more people getting a lot more profi mm -hmm. proficient on a much quicker yeah. uh, timeline. Education is huge. These are, um, for the most part, open source tools available on the internet, but don't ever assume that everyone knows how to use them correctly. Um, integrating some of these tools together can be a nightmare and they can be done really poorly. So you wanna make sure that you are educating people, you're incentivizing them, but just don't ever mandate it because it will never work in your favor. And the last one almost feels like the uh, good old dashboards that we all started years ago, whether it's out of Jenkins or something else, but it's on a different level. Broadcast your progress. Make it the cool thing to move to for these new approaches, showing that it's having an uptick. Um, get people to essentially say, I want to be on that bandwagon. So we have time for just uh, a few questions, maybe something like three or four if I look by the time, but we'd love it to be almost an ask me anything. So we have microphones in the aisle if it's easy for you to get to those. Uh, otherwise, we have a couple of colleagues that will pass them into the center of the row if you needed it. So just um, either walk to one of the mics there and there or raise your hand and one of our team members would be happy to pass it to you.